God rescues and redeems his people. And out of that glorious, wonderful rescue, simply because he loves them, he brings his people to the base of Mount Sinai and then starts to give them the most amazing commands. Now, these are not ways to obey God so that you may earn redemption and rescue and grace and mercy. They have already been rescued. This is what we do. This is our response to being rescued. Our response to being rescued is to say, Lord, how might we return our deep love for you? Jesus says, those who love me obey my commands. So in the midst of Leviticus chapter 19, God starts to speak to God's people. And he says, if I'm going to dwell in you, amongst you, if you are going to carry my presence into this world and into this land specifically, this crossroads of the world in Israel, if the people are to engage my presence here, you must live differently. Right, church? This is also the rest of the epistles. Um, I often like to suggest that Leviticus is very similar to Paul's letters. That all of those instructions about how we live, how we carry the presence of God into this world, how we share God's presence, all y'all are the house of the Lord, right? All y'all are the temple of the living God. All of us together, we are living stones being built together to carry the presence of the Lord into the world. And that means that you cannot act any old way that you would like to. Now, this is not because we are then going to earn our rescue and redemption and salvation to the Lord. This is our response to being rescued and to being tasked with the job of carrying God's presence in this world. It means that when people come to the people of God, they should see a different kingdom. To quote a dear friend of mine, if we build the kingdom, people will look for the king. And it is not obnoxious to ask Israel to go and do this, to go and carry God's presence into this world. It is common sense, isn't it, to walk into a dark room and turn on a light. And so God is asking God's people here to walk in and to turn on a light. And the very beginning of Leviticus chapter 19 says, Be holy, set apart, different from the profane and the ordinary, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then it starts with this beautiful verse, respect your mother and father, right? And this beautiful echo that we find from the Ten Commandments and further on. Don't turn to idols. When you do all of these what, these different things, here are these instructions. And I'm just highlighting a few as we go through in the interest of time. Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, keep, keep concern for the poor. Don't take the edges of your field. Leave those corners for the harvest. I am the Lord. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely. Don't defraud your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. This is also very similar to last week's parasha when it talks about this we, why is it so much effort spent on leprosy? And the rabbi said because it is actually connected to the sin of gossip, and there's a whole fun story about all of that, and you can discuss it. But the reason why they were so concerned is because gossip is something that hurts all three entities. It hurts the person that says it. It hurts the person that it's about, and it hurts the person that hears it. And the same is true for these instructions. 
that if we harm people in our community, if we do not care for the deaf, for the blind, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the stranger in our midst, then we ourselves are being harmed. We are harming the person that we are mistreating. And the community that is carrying the presence of God into this world is also deeply harmed. And then the reputation of the God of Israel is harmed. So God cares very deeply about how we behave and how we treat one another. And this is what comes from one of my favorite passages. I say, amongst Leviticus 19, two of the most powerful commands come through. The first one in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then the second one I'd like to point out is Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Because you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now the first command to love your neighbor as yourself is often called the golden rule, but this is a mistake. The golden rule is different. In its positive formulation, it states, act towards others as you wish them to act towards you. Or in its negative formulation given by Hillel, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. But these rules, then, are not about love. They are what evolutionary psychologists call reciprocal altruism. The Torah does not say, be kind to your neighbor because you wish them to be kind to you. It says, love your neighbor. That is something different and far stronger. Rabbi Akiva, quoted in the Sifra, said that love your fellow as yourself, that that is the central principle in the Torah. The central principle. And Jesus, of course, echoes this as well. The second command is more radical still. Most people in most societies have feared, hated, or even harmed the stranger. In fact, we can think of many societies today, can we not, where this is going on. It is going on in my community, in my home, in my state, in my town, in my nation, back home, and it is also going on here in Israel and frequently in the news, is it not? And maybe some of you in this room have often been treated as a foreigner or a stranger, or you are well known of your, you are well aware of your own status here as a ger, as a stranger, as a foreigner in this land. This is called xenophobia, but we never hear the opposite word, xenophilia, love of the stranger. But it is what is in our Torah, and is what in our Brit Hadashah as well, in the whole of Tanakh. But people don't usually love strangers. It is difficult, is it not? Is it not difficult? Now, many of us today will be asked frequently, Pastor, what is your position on fill-in-the-blank latest controversy? 
whether political or social commentary or cultural commentary. But in over 25 years of my pastorate and in 45 years of being in the Christian community and have since when I was quite young dedicating my life to Jesus and feeling called to shepherd God's people, I have never, ever been asked, Danielle, how are you doing today, pastor, on loving your neighbor or loving your enemy or loving your stranger in your midst. No one has ever asked me that. Pastor, what's your position on? Fill in the blank. Inerrancy, inspiration, this church, sprinkling, dunking, transubstantiation, hot topics that I will not fill in the blank for because I am concerned about the rush onto the stage, right? All of those things are asked of me all the time, but no one says, how are you doing today with the Shema? How are you doing today with what Jesus himself says is the number one commandment? To love God with everything and the second, like to it, to love our neighbor as ourself. You see, this is why the Torah commands us to love the stranger in almost every occurrence of the 36 times it adds the explanation because you were strangers in Egypt. God knows we're not going to do this unless we remember that we also are strangers and have been strangers. The Israelites were a nation born in exile, in slavery. God's people know what it is like to be a vulnerable minority. And I would say also here in this land that Notstream here, Christians here know what it is like to be a vulnerable minority here. And sometimes when we are scared and we are vulnerable and we are concerned, as the Israelites also were as they were going to go into this new land and meet strangers on every corner and big cities that were walled and fortified and giants, the next thing, next time you think that you cannot wait to go to the promised land, we should all remember that it includes giants, walled cities, fortifications, and battles, and 70% desert. I always used to think it was much more like Hawaii, Sadly disappointing. The love of the stranger is central to our faith. And Jesus increases upon this with love of those that we would consider enemies. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate those who hate you. Hate those who persecute you. Hate your enemy. Of course, that is nowhere in our Torah, but it was amongst of the time of Jesus' day. That maybe there was a reason to hate Romans or those on other sides of religious divides and discussions, or the pagans, or the Samaritans. But instead, here too, the Torah is not giving us a command of just justice or righteousness or reciprocal altruism. Here the Torah is speaking of love. God's command is to love, not out of your own self-interest, but because this is our response to having been loved by a God who rescued us when we were foreigners and aliens and strangers and did not even know his name to have his name on our lips. Of course, this is the central command of all of our faith, is it not? Shema Israel, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. But it is not just love of God that defines us. It is also the love of humanity, too. And this is exactly what Jesus is commenting on when he is, requ- he is spoken to by a Torah teacher, an expert in the law, in Luke 10. So let's very briefly then look to Luke chapter 10, a quite famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
On one occasion, an expert in the law, this is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Don't you love how Jesus just answers questions with questions? Did you know that Jesus is your question man and not your answer man? What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's got the right answer. It's also a pretty easy question. Love, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus the tricky question, right? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response, like a good rabbi, is once upon a time. Right? He starts to teach a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. It's like he doesn't quite want to say the word Samaritan, does he? And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this parable is so well known amongst Christians and amongst even those who are non-Christians that we've often talked about even Good Samaritan laws. In the United States, we have Good Samaritan laws that if you see somebody in trouble, it's your requirement, your responsibility to go and to engage, to help. But perhaps there's more than only just let's help people who are suffering in this story. I think Jesus is pretty brilliant here. He's pretty brilliant all the time, but it's very much on display in this story. So let's take a look. First of all, where does the parable take place? Now, according to Jesus, um, in Jesus' day, we have two regions, one to the north, Samaria, and one to the south, Judea. And in this area, we, of course, have Jerusalem and Jericho, about 15 miles apart, but about a 3,800-foot uh, distance in terms of ascent and descent. Here is the road of Jesus' day. It is quite well known. Now, remember when Jesus is telling this story, he is setting the story in this place. If you go to find the inn of the Good Samaritan, that is a nice way to remember the story, but Jesus is not necessarily actually setting a story that happened in that place, but one that would be well known in that time because this is a difficult road. It's a difficult road to walk on, And this week we walked on it as well. In fact, yesterday I was on this road. And as you walk down in, you can start to see that it is the terrain is difficult, that you would be subject to robbers in the area, that people could hide, and that you wouldn't have much recourse of action should you be in trouble. 
Mark Twain actually talked about this in his book, The Innocents Abroad, in 1869. It is his chronicles of travel, many of which was to the promised land. And if you've not read it, you should. It's quite hilarious um, and interesting and a wonderful um, first-hand account of what things looked like. Also, he's Californian. I'm Californian. He is from San Francisco, writing back and through to the San Francisco Times at this time. Not from there, but writing for the newspaper. And he often is saying, eh, Sea of Galilee, Lake Tahoe's better. Um, he's got quite a, a bit of tongue-in-cheek, but he records that when he is here, they have to actually hire Bedouin to escort them down from Jerusalem to Jericho, because if they don't, they will fall victim to robbers. And then as he is doing this, um, and they've hired these people and escorting them down, these other Bedouin tribes come running through, sort of waving scabbards, but Mark Twain suggests that it's all just a big ruse to make the tourists have to spend lots of money um, protecting themselves. So this is what the road looks like uh, today, the road. And you can always already see that it would be difficult if you'd gotten hurt on this road. As I led people down this road in our tour group and, and had my four-year-old daughter by my hand, before we got off the bus, I explained to her, if you want to come with mommy, you must hold my hand the entire time. You must not run on this trail because it is a quick drop on one side. Isn't it? Gertrude Bell, also in 1907, the Lawrence Arabia female version, um, she was quite an incredible woman, and she wrote a book called The Desert and the Sown. And as she would come and hang out um, in the desert amongst um, the Arabs living in the land, um, she also would talk of this road. And she said this in her book, The road dips east and crosses a dry water course, which has been the scene of many tragedies. Under the banks, the Bedouin used to wait to rob and murder pilgrims as they passed. Fifteen years ago, the Jericho Road was as lawless a track as is the country that lies beyond the Jordan. You see, even in just recent memory, this road is not a safe road to travel on. So as Jesus places this story here, everyone amongst them, while they know that this road they must travel, it is one of the ways to get up to Jerusalem from the Rift Valley, from near the Jordan River, it is also a road that can be treacherous. So as he starts to tell this story, this man fell into the hands of robbers. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that happened to my cousin, right? I mean, this is a, a familiar story. And then he says that after the man is there lying and dying on the road, that three people come, a priest and a Levite first, and then a Samaritan. Now, as each of them come, Jesus tells a very funny joke, doesn't he? They cross to the other side. And if we just go back one slide for one moment, where is the other side of that road? If you are walking on that path and you're crossing to the other side, in my imagination, it looks a little like this. Here's a dead guy dying. Right? In, in some part, you can very clearly see that the person is in need. You can't in any way justify yourself later to say that you did not know that they were hurt. And so these people are passing by. They're passing by this man who's come from Jerusalem and is going down to Jericho. Perhaps a Judean, perhaps a faithful Jew who had been worshiping up in the temple, but he is making this route. And here his countrymen, the priest and the Levite, those we would hope would fully embody these commands to love your neighbor as yourself and to love the foreigner and the stranger among you, in Jesus' story, they pass on by. But a Samaritan, 
Now, in Jesus' day, Samaritans were looked upon as half-breeds, half-Jews, if even that. They had their own temple, not in the place where Jerusalem was. There was conflict between the two groups going back and forth. They would find different ways to antagonize one another. One would scatter bones inside the temple right around Passover so that it would be unclean. And then the other group would do the same. They would retaliate to one another all the time. And Jesus then takes this story and this Torah teacher comes and he says, So who then is my neighbor? And isn't that the crux of the issue in our entire life? Who then is my neighbor? Do I have to do this to everyone? Must I love everyone that I meet? Must I love the ones that are most difficult in my life? Must I do this? And is that person really my neighbor? Or could we start to have a semantical argument as to whether or not that person's really made in the image of God? Because aren't they disobeying the Torah? And haven't they done all these terrible things? Aren't they idol worshipers? Those crazy people to the north of us here in Judea, they're just nuts, those country folk. And so Jesus tells this story, and it's not just about, ah, man, the Samaritan, the one we look down upon, is the one that does the right thing, and isn't that surprising? But perhaps there's even more. If we turn to Second Chronicles chapter 28, beginning in verse 8 and 15, beginning in verse 8, there has been a war between the northern kingdom, at this time called Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And they're having a civil war and conflict. And God is angry with Judah, it says in our text, and so God has handed the Judahites over to the Israelites in the north. In verse 8, the Israelites took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. And they also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. So we have that word right there, Samaritan, Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded whose name means encourager, was there, and he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria. And he said, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves, but aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen you have taken as prisoners for the Lord's fierce Anger rests on you. And so they all decide that this is actually a very good idea and they don't want to anger the Lord. So the soldiers in verse 14 give up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials of the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners. Remember, these are the Judeans. And from the plunder, they clothe all who are naked. They provide them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, healing balm, And all who are weak, they put on donkeys, and they take them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and return to Samaria. This passage is very, very similar to the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have Samaritans acting generously towards the Judeans. They are clothing them. They are taking care of them. They are binding up their wounds. They are putting on donkeys. We have Samaria and Jericho, the city of Palms, both of these cities occurring. We have a Jerusalemite and a Samaritan engaging in the story with one another. And this is the amazing part of this parable. What Jesus is deeply saying here is that person that you've considered the other your whole life is your brother. The other is your brother? 
Are you kidding me? But this whole story in Second Chronicles says they are your kinsmen. They are your countrymen. They are your brothers. And you do not get, as all of Jesus' listeners are hearing this story, you do not get the luxury of deciding that they are not worthy of love. They are not only your neighbor. They may not only be a stranger to you. They may not only be your enemy, but they are also to be considered your brothers. And this must have been quite shocking to those who do not want anything to do with the Samaritans. Who is, these are the modern day Samaritans, a nice photo from up in Samaria. Certainly also not considered part of the Judeans today. Who is the other for you and for me today? Perhaps if you are wealthy, it is the poor. If they could only pick them up by the bootstraps, they could get things together. Too bad they don't have bootstraps. Perhaps if you are the poor, it is the rich. If only they would be more compassionate to those in need, they would be my brother. Perhaps it is those who like to work at Google or Yahoo. Um, In my community, that is, now Yahoo doesn't even have that name anymore. Uh, Perhaps it's those who prefer Apple over Microsoft. Who is the other to you today? Is it perhaps those who love the arts? Or is it those who love monster truck rallies? Who do you not share anything in common with that you might say, that person is not somebody I I can communicate with, I can share life with? They might be deserving what it is they get. Is it the people that watch television or the people that read books? Who do you decide today, as you've just, you and I have looked down perhaps just a little bit on our nose, is perhaps people who live in the red states or in the blue states? Perhaps it's people who liked this person or who liked this person or this person. Who is the other to you and me today? Perhaps it is people that would stand at a rally and protest this way or this way. Who of you and I have decided are outside the bounds of God's deep love and deep rescue in this world? Who is it that we have decided is outside of our own family of faith so far removed that we cannot find any way to communicate with them today? In this land here, it might be Catholics, it might be Protestants, it might be Jews, it might be Muslims, it might be those who claim no faith at all. Who have you and I decided already that that person is beyond our reach, beyond our capacity to love. It does not quite matter. It might even be somebody in our own home. It might be somebody that we are married to. It might be somebody in our own four walls. Who is the other to you and I today? But Jesus' commands here and the commands of the whole of the Torah are clear. We must love. Love never fails. So how on earth do we do this? This is very difficult, is it not? Is it not difficult? You've all already mastered, yes? You've already clearly mastered loving all the difficult people in your life. Please, Bavakasha, come on up here and teach me how to do it. Because I have not mastered this at all in my life. In spite of my deep love for my Savior and Messiah Yeshua, I have a hard time doing this. How do we do this? Well, number one, I'd just like to suggest that we can rest in Jesus' love. That Jesus' love is powerful enough to overcome our own insufficiencies and weaknesses in all of this. In 1 John 4, 7, 9, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whomever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. If God is love, then when I come to that difficult other in my life, not just the neighbor, not just the friend, not just the stranger, maybe even in my own home, but the other that is also my brother, according to Jesus. When I come to that person and I find my own capacity for love so very, so very weak, I can pray, dear Jesus, please help me love this person. Because you love them. They are deeply made in the image of God. You died for them. And so you love them perfectly. So please fill me with a compassionate love for this person. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Doesn't this so deeply resonate with our central commands found in Torah? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the stranger, the foreigner in your midst. And I love how so much in Deuteronomy, God is constantly talking about a covenant of love to a thousand generations. It's so frequent for me in my head that it starts to sound like a Barry White song. Covenant of love to a thousand generations. I start to hear that all over Torah, because this, because of the person of Jesus Christ, because of how God so loved the world, we on this side of the resurrection, we get to read our whole scriptures through the lens of love the love that is fully on display through the sun and we get to read back into our entire story and see how god has been pushing this crazy weird thing i mean what kind of god have you ever heard of that's just like hey you guys want to just love me because i so love you i mean it just kind of starts to sound ridiculous doesn't it but it so fits with our whole story Number two, I'd like to suggest that if we want to do this, we should start asking questions. Questions like, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And listen to questions like, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And ask a question like, well, who is my neighbor? And then let Jesus tell a story. Let him tell a story in your life of the one who you are to be calling neighbor and how you are to be loving that person. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Aren't these good questions? And aren't these good questions we need to be asking today as we walk around and declare that we are the church of Jesus and that we are carrying the presence of God into this world and then we then should be known for our love. Isn't that true? Jesus says that they will know that we are his Talmudim, his disciples, by our love. And when we ask questions, when we let Jesus ask questions of us, Jesus is able to disrupt our stereotypes and change how we live. Ask a question. Who is it, Jesus, that I have decided is not my brother? And how shall I start to live differently? Because indeed, that person that I have othered is my kinsman, my brother, my sister. Number three, I think we should demonstrate our love through action. I think we need to find practical ways where we do this, that it is not simply enough to start to think to ourselves, okay, I'll be more loving to that person this week. Because that won't work, will it? It must be demonstrated through action. I think it is first and foremost extending our hand, 
putting our name tag on ourselves, realizing that we too are the other, and saying, Shalom, peace, and starting a conversation. Jesus is radical in his approach. It is not only love your neighbor. It is not only love the stranger. It is also love the enemy and the person that you and I have othered is our kinsman. The other is our brother. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help. This is hard and beautiful and exciting and encouraging and hopeful and world-changing. And surely something can change in our midst when we begin to rest in your love, to ask through the power of your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to extend that love out to those that we do not want to love. God, our hearts are often so hard. Would you soften them to your deep love for every person we meet? And would you help us to see how you love them and how you have created them in the image of God? Jesus, we rest in you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us how to become your disciples and to follow you and that we would begin to see ourselves so changed and also so loved in this world as we extend that love to others. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.